if you don't know who I am, I don't know how you don't know who I am, but if you don't know who I am, I'm Autumn. I am David's wife. I'm in charge of the nursery downstairs, which we always need volunteers for, all you people. (laughs) Um, Just a couple announcements, uh, reiterating all of these slides over here. On Mondays, um, if you would like to talk or just hang out or get coffee with my husband, he is free. He is making appointments. You can get a hold of him on Facebook, or if you know his number, or if not, just go walk up to him and pull his beard, and he'll listen to you. (laughs) On Tuesdays, we have Kelly and Andy doing the Shawnee State Bible Study. It is at 830 in Massey. Do you have a room number yet, Kelly? Yes? You have a room number? Oh, it's not in Massey. Don't look at that slide. Don't look at that slide. It's in the library. <laughs> so, yeah, in the library on eight, at 8.30 on Tuesdays. Wednesdays, we have Stephen's Bible study. It's the attributes of God. It starts at 7. It's at the Rev House. 706 Campbell Avenue. If you don't know where that is, you can just, like, look outside and, like, it's way over there. It should have, like, the big old red dot, like, on Google Maps just hanging out above the roof. It'd be way more convenient. Uh, Thursdays, Cooley and Allie are doing the What We Believe class. Is that what it's called? What We Believe? Yes, What We Believe. It is at 730, also at the Rev House. Still trying to get that red dot above the house. Uh, we have planned gamer night. It is on the 19th this month. It'll be from 6 to 9 again. We had a lot of people show up last time. I know it got rescheduled because of the snow, but we'd still love to have you come play all the kinds of games. Um, this Saturday, we'll be doing a pancake for our East End ministry. If you meet at the Blue Store at 1130, or if you don't know how to get to the Blue Store, there'll be people here around 11. Um, making stuff and getting it ready. So if you want to walk over with them or help carry over a table or whatever, you can meet here at 11 or you can meet there at 11.30. It normally lasts about an hour, an hour and a half. Um, Last time was a really good success. We had a lot of people, even though it was cold. Even though it was cold. So definitely come out to that and help serve the community. On Sundays at 5, Some of you were here and some of you weren't. We have guys and girls groups. The guys meet in here at 5 and the girls meet downstairs at 5. If you need more information on that, talk to AJ for the guys group or talk to me and Allie about the women's group. Um, I think that's everything. It was a mouthful, but that's all right. Uh, So let's pray and then we'll all get up and hang out and meet with each other. Dear God, I just... Thank you for this church, and thank you for the people in it. Um, Thanks for giving people a willingness to come and learn and worship and grow and serve you. I just pray you keep that fire in all of us, and for us who don't quite have that fire yet, just give us a fire to learn about you and to serve you and to do what you want for us to do in, in our lives to further the kingdom. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What's up, Revolution? Come on, do it again, do it again. Super Bowl Sunday, man. What's up, Revolution? That's what I'm talking about. It's good to see all the real Christians here this evening. Um, 
Yes, everyone else is out worshiping the Broncos. And uh, who else is? I seriously don't follow. Seahawks? You said the Seahawks, Kelly? <laughs> I appreciate that. So the Panthers and the Broncos. I seriously don't know anything about anything. I can know the rules of football. I played it in junior high, but then quit caring. Just fun fact, piece of information about me that none of you needed to know. Anyway, uh, some of you might know this. I, I know I told a few of you. Um, a couple of weeks ago, both uh, my vehicle and Autumn's vehicle broke down within three days of each other. It was awesome. Right? Like, I can't fully stress to you how good of a feeling that is to have no cars uh, <laughs> and have to borrow things uh, from your family. But like God was good to us. We, we had vehicles for certain. My dad and my grandpa hooked me up and Autumn up. But this week, we actually both got new vehicles, so it was pretty awesome. Um, I say it was awesome, but like in reality, like I, I went $24,000 in debt this week, uh, which brings the grand total to somewhere around 150 Gs. I think I'm in the hole um, with autumn student loans and all that good stuff. That has nothing to do with this sermon whatsoever. I just wanted to tell you that because the Bible tells us to weep with those who weep. And uh, God help me, it sucks. Cry with me. Please, I hate spending money so bad, and it just, it took, it took like that, I think maybe that last shred of innocence I had away from me to walk onto that, like, car lot and have him suck my soul out of my chest, um, <laughs> but I guess maybe that has a little bit to do with the sermon this evening, like, because of money, like, we're still in our Luke series, and we're, we're talking about, you know, this series is called, Did Jesus Really Say That?, and we're still looking at the, um, some of the shocking things that Jesus said that a lot of people maybe don't know or haven't really taken a deep look at. And um, like I said about money, me talking about that for a second. Tonight we're actually going to be looking at the passage where Jesus threw the money changers and the people selling animals out of the temple. And as I was reflecting on that passage, I started thinking I really wish that Jesus would have been with me at Glockner's to throw the salesman off the lot. But anyway, um, <laughs> there's actually a meme that I always think of if we, if we got it. Do we got it? If anyone ever asks you what would Jesus do, remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. Um, <laughs> I always think of that whenever I, I, I read this passage or think about this passage, but it, it, make, it makes me laugh. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fairly controversial passage. Um, this passage is, is somewhat debated on by scholars for when exactly Jesus did it, because John records it early on in Jesus' ministry, and the other three Gospels record it um, you know, towards the end of his ministry, whenever he enters Jerusalem for his final time. Uh, but we're not really going to get into that. If you want to know some of those nerd facts, come and see me after the sermon, and I'll bore you to death for 30 minutes. Um, but uh, it, it's... This passage that we're going to look at with Jesus, some of, like what he says whenever he's in the temple and, and, and just going wild uh, in there, it's really often mistaken by Christians for what Jesus was actually teaching, like what the point he was trying to get across um, and why he did what he did. A lot of people just kind of read it like, okay, Jesus flipped some stuff in the temple and, and we're going on. It's just kind of like a byway story. Um, but I know that, like, for me, whenever I was growing up in church, I never had the real reason Jesus did that explained to me. So I'm pretty excited to teach this to you um, and give you some, like, historical context on it so you can understand it a little bit better. Um, but above all, what we're going to see in this passage, as with every text in the Bible, is we're going to see the grace of God on display in Jesus, um, even as he does something that seems incredibly out of character for him like causing a commotion in the temple, even though it's really not out of character for him, and we'll see that. Um, 
But tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. Um, If you're new here, I see a couple of new faces. We actually have blue Bibles in those pews. Um, Take one home with you if you're new. Uh, That's our gift to you uh, from the church. You're not stealing, I promise. We will not call the police. Just take it with you. Uh, But yeah, Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. It's going to be up here on the projector. So we're going to read through that. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And after that, he taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word that he said. All right, so this is a really crazy part of scripture. Like, I don't know, uh, like, Jesus is, not that I don't know this, like, it's just really weird for Christians to kind of see this facet of who Jesus is. Like, he is like eight shades of ticked off in verses 45 and 46. Um, Like that meme said, like the Gospel of John records that Jesus took some cords and braided up a whip. And Matthew says that he flips over tables and chairs. Luke doesn't add those things, or doesn't mention those things, but the other Gospels do. So Jesus is dumping out like chests or whatever with like coins in them so like imagine his coins flying everywhere jesus is screaming um flipping tables flipping chairs every time i say tables and chairs i always think of like wwf matches <laughs> tables ladders and chairs match anyway uh but like think of like this is well, in that same vein i guess uh, like a red-faced angry screaming jesus like we don't ever like the christians in general like to, to a lot of christians especially if you grew up in church Thinking of Jesus in that way, like, think like just, like, foaming at the mouth, angry, screaming Christ. That's crazier than his miracles. (laughs) Right? For a lot of Christians, because we don't think about Jesus ever doing anything, like, this wild. Like, his resurrection, like, pales in comparison in some of our minds to, like, this being the craziest thing that he ever did. Um, And, again, it's kind of why it's controversial. Um, I'm not saying Jesus beat anyone with any whips or anything. That's, again, up for scholarly debate. Uh, But, anyway... Why was Jesus so angry, though? Right? Like, why did he lose it on these people in the temple? Um, I think that that's like the, one of the, that's like the biggest question to me of this whole passage. Why would he do that? Why, why was he tripping? Why was he doing that? Um, and I grew up thinking that Jesus flips out in the temple solely because he was, people were selling things in the temple. Right? Anyone else grew up in that church? Like, that that was the meaning of this text? Like, you can't sell anything in the church building. Like, that's what this text is teaching you. Anyone else? Am I the only one? I see a few people. Yeah. So, like, this passage, like, again, growing up, it was, well, Jesus flipped out because they were selling animals in the temple, so we don't sell anything in the temple. But whenever, like, a special singing group would come, like, anyone grow up with quartets in their church? Yeah. Get you some southern gospel, right? This four-part harmonies are delicious. Um, Right? But, like, so whenever one of those groups would come, you can't sell anything in the church building because it's, like, the temple. But you can sell it in the fellowship hall, man. Like, I remember that. I always thought that was kind of funny. Or, like, people would be, like, uh, selling those dollar candy bars that are, like, kind of nasty but kind of good. And everyone always buys one because they're a dollar. And uh, you can't sell those in the church, but you can sell them on the steps leading into the church. Like, that was how I grew up, and I always thought that was kind of funny. Um, But that's not the case. That's not the case. I just kind of wanted to make fun of my upbringing, I guess. Mom, I still love you. 
I love you a lot. Um, but, but we're going to need some context then. So if that's not the case, if that's not the real point that you can't just, like, you just can't sell stuff in the church building, if that's not what we're trying to learn from this, um, then we're going to need some historical context to see what this passage is really telling us. Um, so let's hop into it. I love history. I hope you do. If you don't, I have a microphone and you're going to listen. Um, but Passover, all right? That's what's going on here in this text. It's Passover time. The Passover is incredibly close. It's within a few days it's going to start. And that means hundreds of thousands of people are going to be coming into Jerusalem, and they're coming to celebrate. They're coming to celebrate the fact that God rescued the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt and used Moses as his prophet to lead them out and all the miracles and, um, and, and all the stuff that comes with. Read the book of Exodus if you're not familiar. Don't watch the films, uh, but read it. Um, but some of the stuff that, that went down whenever you would go to Jerusalem for Passover was that if you were a Jew, you had to pay a temple tax. Um, and that's, that wasn't like a, a bad thing. That's actually something that God says in Exodus chapter 31 um, that, that Jews had to do. And what they had to do was they had to pay a half shekel temple tax. And that's like 0.2 ounces of silver. So like for us in America, I think silver is like $15 an ounce. So it's like 75 cents roughly. So like this is not like, an, like a crazy tax on the temple. Um, and the reason being that, that they had to pay this tax whenever they came for Passover was once a year, every Jewish man had to pay this half-shekel temple tax so that the temple could have, like, its maintenance, pretty much. So that was all that this was for. This wasn't, like, a, a wicked thing where people are profiting from it, but it's for the maintenance of the temple. And if you're a Jew, you benefit from the temple. That's where sacrifices go down. That's where worship goes down. Um, but what's interesting about them coming for Passover and having to pay this tax is they couldn't just pay with anything. They had to use what's called in the Bible the sanctuary shekel, um, which is just a very specific um, denomination of currency. Um, so what they would do, which makes a lot of sense, they would have money changers in the temple for that. Uh, there would be lots of different currencies coming into Jerusalem, right, because Jews, not all Jews lived in Jerusalem, or sometimes Gentiles would maybe come, uh, or they were living in Gentile countries, rather, and there would be, like, Roman money coming in, Greek money coming in, all different kinds of denominations of cash, um, so they would change it from your money into the sanctuary shekel, so that makes sense, this is a good thing, but what was happening at the time, historically, was that the money changers that were in the temple doing this, they charged a ridiculous fee for services, like, uh, me and Autumn were talking about this because she works at a bank. Like, if you're going to go out of country, you're going to want to change your money in the United States. Like, before you get on your plane, because if you wait until you, like, get in the country that you're going to and try to change American dollars into, like, pesos or whatever at the airport, like, they're going to charge you a huge fee and it's going to hurt. So think like that. Um, so they're charging a ridiculous fee, um, these money changers are, and they're driven by greed. And, again, they're doing this in the temple. And we're going to get into specifically where they were at in the temple and why that was bad here in a little bit. Um, so they're getting charged a lot of money, and they have to pay this tax if they're Jewish. And they're getting charged way too much money for the exchange rate. Um, and the other thing that you would do whenever you came to Jerusalem for Passover was you came to sacrifice. right? Um, and you had to use an animal. This is, this is one of the things that the Old Testament tells us. Whenever you sacrifice an animal uh, in Old Testament times, you have to use one without spot or blemish. right? No bruises, no cuts. No sickness whatsoever, no broken bones, a perfect, like, choice one out of your flock. So that's all that you can present to God is the very best, um, the best of the best. And you could bring your own to the temple, right? And that was what people who did that lived locally, but if you lived pretty far away, that wouldn't make sense to try to bring your own animal because if you're taking a 
week-long journey or something, there's a good chance something can happen. That animal could fall or it could you know, get bruised up or cut or break a bone or something crazy like that. So you wouldn't want to bring your own animal with you. You would want to buy one near the temple. Um, and there were people selling animals in the temple. Again, what, that's really not the problem that they were selling te- um, animals at the temple. They were charging crazy high prices was the problem. Like, uh, for example, if you couldn't afford, uh, like, a lamb or a goat in the Old Testament, God says, like, because he's super gracious, he says, hey, if you're poor, you can sacrifice a couple of doves, right? You can sacrifice a couple of birds. Um, That's what a poor person would offer. And to give you an idea of how high they were charging, if two doves cost a dime apiece in our money, at the temple, they would cost you $10, Right, so like this is like crazy. It's like a hundred times like over and above, and yet you have to present a sacrifice at the temple for Passover if you're a Jew. Um, so again, it's it's think like being at King's Island, right? Like you, you go to King's Island, you're like, man, like I'm really thirsty. It's 105 degrees because I'm an idiot and I came here in July, and I wanted Dasani water because that's all they sell here. And they're like, yeah, that'll be ten dollars plus like your firstborn child. And you're like, yeah, I'll do it. All right, I have to do it or I'm gonna die of thirst. Right, so think like that. It's like a captive market, and they're making a ton of money. And again, they're driven by greed, and they're doing this in the temple. Um, and the reason why this went on, right? You, like, so here we're thinking, okay, so there's all this corruption going on. There's all this greed going on in the temple. How, what are the priests doing, right? Like God's people who are supposed to be mediators on behalf of the Jewish nation, like what are they doing? The priests are letting this go on without question because they're taking a cut of the money. Right, we're starting to see why Jesus would have got really angry whenever he sees all this. The priests, who are supposed to be like the holiest people um, in the nation, are taking a cut. Actually, like whenever this kind of stuff would go down in, in the courtyard where they would be selling all this stuff, there was actually a nickname from the Jewish people, and they called it the Bazaar of Annas. Um, Annas was the name of the high priest. <laughs> so saying like this is Annas's marketplace because Annas is getting so rich off of what's being sold here, and it's so like crooked and wicked. Um, So the problem really wasn't buying and selling or exchanging money in the temple. The problem was extortion and corruption from the priests, right? So we can see why Jesus would get angry. And the the priesthood, honestly, the priesthood allowed this kind of stuff to go on because they didn't care about God, right? They allowed this kind of corruption to go on because they did not care about God at all. All that they cared about was their social standing, uh, their power and their money that came from their position. Does this sound familiar, right? You guys ever watch TBN? (laughs) I've talked to some of you. Some of you guys watch Televangelist. Stop it. All right? <laughs> Just throwing that out. If they got a suit that costs more than that drum kit over there on, don't listen to them preach. Uh, just throwing that out there. Or if their smile is better than a dentist's, don't talk to them. You ever seen Joel Osteen smile? He shows all 32 teeth at one time. It is incredible. I don't know how he does that. Stop listening to that kind of garbage. It's not good teaching. Um, it's just like the high priest Annas, in my opinion. Um, anyway. And so Jesus sees all this stuff going down in the temple, all this corruption, all this extortion, all this greed, money grubbing, especially out of the priests, and he loses his mind. And rightfully so. This is what we call righteous anger. Right? This is good, godly anger. And he starts flipping tables and dumping coins, and he makes a whip, and he drives the sellers out. And what's kind of cool that I was reading, like how it's worded, he physically drove them out of the temple. Think about this. Like, we don't think about Jesus like this. Like, he's, like, super tough. Like, I think, I don't, he's like, I think of, like, a muscle-bound, like, Jesus. When it, that's just me. Just throwing that out there. Don't know why. But, like, he's physically, he's not like, hey, guys, you should get out of here because that's really not cool. Like, no, he's, like, tripping, like, flipping stuff. Get out. Like, picking them up and pushing them out of the temple. Um, again, righteous anger. 
And this whole time that he's doing this, he's just spitting fire at these people. And he's quoting two Old Testament prophets whenever he says um, what he, the quote that we read. Uh, he's quoting two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah is who he's quoting. He's, he, he's actually quoting Isaiah 56, 7, whenever he says, My temple will be a house of prayer right, for all nations. Um, so this temple is to be a, a place... Of, of prayer, again, for anyone, whether they're Jewish or a Gentile or, or whatever, to come and to worship God and to pray. Um, and as far as him saying house of prayer, um, prayer is just communion with God, all right, which is, you could use that interchangeably with worship sometimes. So you're saying, my temple is supposed to be a house of worship where God's holy, righteous people can come and be in communion with him and focus on Him and Him alone and His goodness and the graciousness of Him towards them and their own sin and how much they need Him to make them righteous. But instead of it being a house of prayer, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7 and he says, you've turned it into a den of thieves. Or you could translate that a cave of thieves. Um, The reason why I I would say you've turned it into a cave of thieves is because thieves back then hid out in caves. So what he's saying is instead of this being a place for people to come and worship and reflect on the goodness of God and and truly worship him there with their hearts, you've turned this into a hideout for the wicked. You've turned this into a a hideout for people that they think no one can touch them here because they're in my temple. And I'm telling you that's not the case because he drives them out. So Jesus is declaring that this should be a place and more importantly a people of worship but is instead a place of corruption where the wicked think that they're safe from judgment. All right, because in Jewish thought, they thought, you know, God would never destroy his own temple. God will never let anything bad happen to this temple so we can get away with whatever we want to here because no one's ever going to do anything bad here. That was the Jewish thought. So that's why the, that they thought, kind of felt like they were safe doing this stuff in the temple. But then Jesus drives them out with force and authority, right, like, like a king would. Again, we looked at last week how he asserts the fact that he is king of all things. Um, but as he drives them out, he's doing this in judgment. Right, so I want us to kind of take that. He's driving them out in judgment. He's pronouncing judgment on them. This is wicked. You don't do this here. Your hearts are corrupt. This is a house of prayer. You're a thief. Get out. So he's pronouncing judgment against them for their corrupt hearts and the fact that they don't care anything for God, but they're in it for their own selfish gain. Um, so now that we kind of got a, a good historical view on this and why Jesus was completely justified in doing what he did... Um, there's a few simple truths. We could, we could, we could take this, this sermon a few different places, but there's a few simple truths that I, I want us to, to meditate on because um, there, there are correlations to what happened at the temple that day to us as Christians, right, Christ's church um, today. Right? And, and I think there are things that we, we need to really take to heart. Um, so I hope that, that you'll listen and, and, and be attentive and let this pierce you and meditate on this throughout the week. Um, and not just kind of let this stuff bounce off your hearts, but actually take it in. Um, but the, the first thing, the first simple truth is, is this. And this is, this is what I see. God didn't condone corruption in his temple at all. Right? That's why Jesus does this. Like Even though that the temple is going to be rendered completely obsolete within like four or five days' time whenever Jesus does this, because he's getting ready to die um, during Passover and come back from the dead. He's getting ready to die, and then the temple's going to be completely obsolete. Jesus still says, I will not condone any corruption in here. 
Right? This is still supposed to be a holy place. This is still supposed to be a holy people, and I will not have it whatsoever. And just like Jesus wouldn't condone corruption in the temple, he will not condone it in his church. He will not. All right? And whenever I say church, I don't mean this building. Right? Um, I know we call it a church. Whenever I say church, the Bible tells us that believers make up Jesus Christ's church, that we're his body, that we're his church, that we're his bride. So I don't mean this. But I mean, Jesus won't tolerate corruption from people who claim to be his people. He won't. Just like he wouldn't do it then, he still won't do it now. Um, so let's just talk about a, a short thing, because this will be important for the rest of the sermon. Um, the visible church versus the invisible church. All right, the, the visible church, this is kind of fun if you've never heard this before. I've talked about it, I think, once before. Uh, the visible church is all the people who claim to be God's people. Right? Anyone who claims to be a Christian, anyone who comes to church, anyone who says that they are saved, that's part of the visible church. Right? And, and the visible church is made up of both people who actually love Jesus and who actually believe the gospel and are actually following him and trying to be obedient and submissive to his will. And it's also made up of people who are full of crap. Um, just putting it as bluntly as I can. It's, it's full of people who really don't love Christ whatsoever. They just may come to church for whatever social standing it gives them or whatever benefit they may have for calling themselves a Christian in their area or you know whatever kind of power maybe because I know that there are some people who say that they're preachers or pastors and they're really just in it for some kind of financial gain or social power or authority over people. Um, so within the visible church, there are true believers and, and unbelievers who are parading around as if they're actual believers. And then there's the invisible church. And the invisible church is the actual church, people who actually believe, right? Because I can't go through here and point out everyone in here who's actually a believer and people who actually aren't. Um, I mean, we can't do that anywhere because we can't see people's hearts. We only can see their lives and what they profess with their mouth. Um, So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there because just like the temple had wicked people in there selling animals and, you know, being uh, greedy and extorting the poor, um, they also had true worshipers there in the temple, right? And Jesus didn't throw them out. And we're the same, right? The church today is the exact same. Some people associate themselves with God's people, but are not God's people themselves, right? People, again, affiliate themselves with Jesus Christ, but aren't actually disciples or believers in Christ. Um, I wanted to say that because, again, Jesus won't condone corruption, wickedness. He won't condone sin in his own body. The church is his body. He will not condone it from us. Um, but let's, let's get that clear before we dive into what I mean by corruption. Corruption is not moral failure. All right? I'm not saying here that if you're a Christian, you'll never sin again. Right? We don't believe in Christian perfectionism here. Uh, I talked to someone about that yesterday. That's just kind of a funny belief I don't understand. Um, but corruption is not moral failure. It's not you made a bad decision um, or a single instance of rebellion um, and we know that because the Bible tells us this in 1 John 1, 8, that, that if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Right? So everyone sins. John's writing to Christians whenever he says that. So I'm not saying that um, Jesus won't tolerate sinners, right? Because Jesus loves sinners and he came to die for sinners and we're all sinners whether you're a Christian or not. But here's what corruption is. And I hope that this hits all of us, because this hit me. I hope it hits all of you square between the eyes. Corruption is unrepentant lifestyle sin. That's corruption. That's what won't be tolerated by Christ at all. He hates all sin for certain, but he will absolutely not forgive unrepentant sin. 
He won't do it. He only forgives those who repent and turn to Him and put their faith in Him. But if we're going to talk about corruption from this text, we need to know how were the people in the temple corrupt. right? Because that's what we're going to want to avoid if this is what was setting Jesus off. Um, the first thing, and this hurts, they didn't care for the outsider. Right? This is a form of corruption that Jesus saw in the temple that day. They didn't care for the outsider whatsoever. And I say that because where they were selling all these animals... It was called the Gentile court. There were four courts in the temple before you got to the Holy of Holies where God's presence resided. Um, And on the outer court, again, the the court of the Gentiles, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go any further into the temple than that court. And Jews back then did not care about non-Jews whatsoever. And I want you to know this. Historically, we have records that say um, that there were over 100,000 sacrifices offered at Passover. And they're selling animals for all of these sacrifices. I want you to think of the commotion, of the stench, of just the packed, like, no elbow room in that courtyard. Because there are, like, tens of thousands of animals there. And there are people screaming. Like, you ever watch movies of, like, a Middle Eastern marketplace? Think about that. But it's in the Gentile courtyard. And yet the Jewish people were completely content with what was going on there. Because screw the Gentiles. We don't care about them. They're foreigners. They're outsiders. We don't care at all. Um, that's, that's corrupt. That's wicked. How often do we treat people like that? Right? Like you're not like in our clique or you're not like from this church or you go to another church perhaps or you're not a Christian or maybe you're just like they're just an annoying person. Right? Or someone that we've tried to be patient with and yet they just keep getting on our nerves and then we get to a point where we go, you know what, just screw that guy. (laughs) I'm not talking to him anymore. They get on my nerves and I really don't care what happens to them. I don't care if they know Christ. I don't care if they have any friends whatsoever. I'm done with them, right? And and they're cast out and you don't care about the outsider whatsoever. Um, Again, it could be that strange dude in class. It could be that annoying person that you work with that doesn't really have any friends or that socially awkward cat that seems to screw up every social situation that uh, he or she finds themselves in. That has nobody. I mean, how often are we guilty of not caring for that person? I mean, even among us here at Revolution, like how often are we guilty of that? Of having like our five or six friends that we talk to and not caring to go beyond that and love people the way Christ did. Because Jesus Christ calls that corrupt. Not caring for the outsider. Not caring whether or not they know Christ. Not caring whether or not they properly worship. It's just a thought. Uh, Another way that there was corruption that we can see from this text is they didn't care for the poor. They didn't care for the poor whatsoever. All right? And I say that because we looked at the prices of everything was just jacked up. right? Uh, the prices of doves, again, being our equivalent instead of a dime, it being $10. Um, they were extorting the poor. They were, they were glazing over the poor and saying, you know, I want more resources for myself. Um, so, again, what about us? Like, how often do we pass up poor people? Or we say, you know, this will really inconvenience me, and I'd rather go out, or I'd rather have more money in my bank account, or I'd rather do whatever than tithe, or I'd rather, you know, do my own thing rather than help the person that is in need. Or maybe it's not a homeless person or a person begging on the street, but you just know of a friend in need that could use, you know, spotted 100 bucks or something like that, and you got it laying around, and you're just not willing to help them. Jesus Christ calls that corrupt. He calls that greed. Jesus won't tolerate that from his people. Um, Another one, Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7 at them, right? The, the, the bit about you've turned this place into a den of thieves. And in Jeremiah 7, that chapter calls out um, people who are adulterers, uh, who are thieves, who are liars, who are murderers, um, who are adulterers, um, and idolaters. I don't know if I, I kind of mix those words, adulterer and idolater, up. I think it's a southern accent thing. 
Amen? Anyway. Um, but, but think about those things, right? I mean, like, how, how, often, how often do we, as people who are professing to be a part of the church, find ourselves, you know, putting something before God? Again, anything, whether it's a relationship or whether it's our children or our job or whatever. Um, and we find ourselves becoming idolaters. Or how many of us are sleeping with our girlfriends? Um, or looking at pornography regularly, or just maybe you're not doing either of those things, but you see someone of the opposite sex walk by and you lust after them because Jesus says whatever you do in your heart, it's sin, right? Heart sin is actual sin. You're an adulterer in your heart if you do those things, right? How many of us are guilty of that? Um, How many of us are guilty of hating people, right? I mean, ah, it kind of got a little bit stiller in here, right? Because everyone hates somebody most of the time. I hope you don't, but everyone's got that one person that you just really, if they live or die, a lot of the times, you don't care a whole lot. Um, and maybe you have a good reason, um, or actually well, what you think is a good reason, because I'm not actually going to condone that. Um, you know, do you hate them? Because Jesus says in your heart, if you hate, you've committed murder in your heart. Again, lying. I know you guys. You guys are a bunch of liars and thieves anyway, right? But just things like that. God, and and I, I bring those things to light, and, and, I, and I know we could be more exhaustive with the list. Um, but I just wanted to be specific to the text. But God wouldn't tolerate that kind of junk then, right? That's why Jesus, he, he looks at the priest, and he's accusing them of these things whenever he quotes Jeremiah. You guys are adulterous. You guys are lying, thieving, adulterous, idolatrous murderers. He's accusing them of all those things. You don't care about the poor. You don't care about the outsider. You don't care about God whatsoever. You don't really want to worship him. Um, you don't love me, clearly. Um, and he's like, I won't tolerate it because God won't tolerate it. And I want you to consider this. God's unchanging. So that means if he wouldn't tolerate it then, he won't tolerate it now. He wouldn't tolerate it in the Old Testament era. He won't tolerate it in the New Testament era. Um, and that's why, I don't know if you've ever wondered, why, why does Paul give us these lists of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God, like those who practice homosexuality, liars, those who are greedy, those who are cheats, um, those who practice sexual immorality. Um, I mean, he just goes down the list. Why is that? Well, God does the same thing in the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting one of those passages here, right? So if God doesn't tolerate it then, he still won't put up with that kind of stuff now. And what we should be doing, and what I hope that you're doing, is take a minute, right, and, and throughout the week, I hope you'll do this more, and give pause to that thought. Jesus Christ threw people out of the temple because that's what they were being accused of. Because that's what was in their hearts. And they thought they were safe in the temple because they were among God's people there. And Jesus threw them out. So I want you to ask yourself, is that me? Do I fit in any of the categories that the Bible would call corruption? And again, we should ask ourselves that that question because just as Jesus did with the temple, someday the visible church is going to be cleansed. Someday the visible church is going to be cleansed and we will be cleansed by the judgment of Christ. Right? James 5.9 actually tells us like to live in light of that. It says, like, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Meaning Jesus could return at any time where you're going to die and be judged by him. But one day there will be a judgment day where the church visible church will be cleansed and all will be that will be left is the invisible church of actual believers and those who are corrupt and those who don't truly have faith are going to be cast out so just as those people just as those people in the temple were cast away from God's presence in the temple those who are unrepentant about their sin and are completely content with where they're at spiritually and they're fine with these sins in their lives whatever they might be they're going to be cast from God's presence and into hell eternally 
Right? And I don't want us just to think about that uh, like as like a, just something to glaze over, but like an eternal conscious torment in the fires of hell for eternity. Like, think about that for a second. Like, that's what Jesus says comes for the corrupt. God's eternal displeasure and anger and wrath for eternity on those who would affiliate themselves with God's people without actually caring for God whatsoever or caring about the corruption in their life. Why, why will they get that, though? And they'll get that because of their refusal to repent and, and refusal to strive for obedience to God. Right? Because their refusal to do those things is proof that they're not part of God's people. Again, you might be part of the visible church, but you're not part of the true church. You don't really have faith in Christ because true faith in Jesus always brings about repentance. And repentance isn't something that you do once whenever you're seven years old and some of them are playing, you know, friends are friends forever and you come down to the altar and you pray a conversion prayer. Repentance is a lifestyle of recognizing my sin and what's corrupt in me and asking God to forgive me and change my heart. This isn't a one-time shot. This is something that we do daily. And true faith in Christ produces repentance on a daily basis. So we're not okay with our corruption. Right? And Jesus is displaying his kingship, furthermore, whenever he throws these people out of the temple. Right? And, and, and what, all that I can gather from that, and I posted it on Facebook, is those who reject Jesus as Lord and King will not receive him as Savior. Right? If you won't accept the king, again, because he's flexing his king authority here and throwing people out of the temple, if you won't accept him as Lord and King, you, you will not receive him as Savior. You're, you're corrupt. True faith leads to repentance, and only faith in Christ saves. So if you have no repentance or you find yourself content with your sin, rest assured, you're not a Christian. You're not. And you'll be cast from God's presence in judgment. But then this leads me to this question, though. What does Jesus want, then? Right? Like, what's he want? Like, what's he trying to achieve? Whenever he throws people from the temple, he casts them out for being corrupt. What does he want? Right? Clearly, right, Jesus hates corruption. Clearly, Jesus Christ hates any and all sin. And we all know, we're keenly aware, or at least I hope you are now, because I hope you're thinking about your own lives like I am. Um, I, like, we can't offer him perfection because we're sinners, right? Everyone's guilty of this. Every single person is corrupt. The Bible says that on repeat, even if you're a Christian, there's still corruption in you. We can't offer him perfection. So what does he want? What's his, what's his reasoning in trying to purify the temple? What does he want from us? What are we supposed to do? What does he want? Jesus wants true worship from his people. Right? He says, like, my temple will be a house of prayer. My temple will be a house of worship, you could say. He wants true love for God. Right? Which is repentance and faith. Trusting God's promise that he made about Christ. Turning from our sin. Agreeing with God about our sin. He wants true worship. And that means worship from our hearts. Right? From changed hearts. Right? Jesus actually says in John 4.24, he talks about, you know, one day the temple won't matter anymore, but God's people will worship in spirit and in truth. Right? Again, from their hearts, from a changed heart, in their spirit, the truth. Um, not this external, visible church religion where you show up to church one time and you can quote John 3.16 and you, you might be a CEO, uh, Christian Easter only. Christian, you know, and you come to church occasionally and you're part of that. No, he says, like, I want changed hearts, true religion. And the thing is, changed hearts only come from changed minds. Right? Our thinking has to change first. And the only thing that's going to change us is the gospel. Right? And I know some of you guys think, man, we're doing, like, he talks about this every single week, that only change comes from the gospel. And it's true. 
Right? This, this fact that we are corrupt and we're sinners and we can't offer Christ perfection, even though he demands complete purity out of his people. But in spite of that, God's given us grace through Christ. That Christ has been the one who's been cast away from God and been separated from God on the cross and receiving God the Father's wrath for us in our place so that we could be accepted by God as pure and blameless and clean and uncorrupt, without spot or blemish. Right, really dwelling on that, really believing that, not just knowing it, but actually believing that and letting that affect our lives, that's going to lead us to the cross where Christ's grace was displayed for us and His love was shown for us, and that's what's going to lead us to repentance and nothing else. That's the only thing that's going to lead us to true faith. And true faith is going to lead us into true religion. Right? Jesus wants true worship from us, true religion. Here's how James defines it. James 1.27, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Right? True religion is drastically different from cold, dead, visible church junk like the temple sellers had. Right? This is caring for the poor. This is caring for the outcast among you. Again, whether it's at school, or whether it's at work, whether it's in your own family, here at the church, whatever it is, Caring for them, even when it's difficult and trying, and your patience is worn thin, and people don't seem like they're helping themselves, but that you would still, because God has shown you such kindness and graciousness, even though that you're a sinner and you can continue to sin every day, that you would continue to love them, even when it's difficult. Right? So that's the first half that James says here. And then true religion, true worship of God, is loving Jesus Christ so much that we refuse to be controlled by sin. That we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. We would refuse to be corrupted by the world. And that's what we really strive for if we believe in Jesus. We believe the gospel. That's what God wants from us. But for me, I think the kicker of this whole passage, actually, um, is, is verse 47, the first few words. He says this. He says, after that, so after Jesus did all this, after that he taught daily in the temple. Now, this is the grace of God on display in Jesus. I don't want you to miss it, right? This is huge. Jesus threw out the corrupt from the temple, knowing everyone is a sinner. Now we're all keenly aware of our own sin. And what does Jesus do? Does he just point out the problem, toss them out, and say, that's a wrap, you're wicked, I'm done with you. No, that's not what he does. He says, says, after that he taught daily in the temple. This is the grace of God. Jesus didn't just judge and cast out. He wasn't finished. Right? His goal was to lead people into repentance. Right? So what Jesus does is he, he pointed out sin in order to preach the good news to sinners. That's what he does all the time. He taught. He taught them. He tells them, you know, I'm going to be the one who redeems you. I am the Messiah who has come to set you free from sin, set you free from bondage. That's the good news that Jesus would have been proclaiming in the temple every day until he's arrested. And sent to the cross ultimately to fulfill all the promises that he gives people in the temple as he's preaching this good news to sinners. All right, and here's what killed me whenever I was reading this. He's teaching in the temple. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, if you just go back and read through only the Gospel of Luke, you see this. Jesus' method of ministry was to teach all of those who would come to him. Think about this. This isn't a crazy leap. Like this, It stands to reason very strongly that the ones that Jesus had cast out, he had grace for them as well if they would have returned to the temple to hear him teach. Think about that. 
There's the grace of God given to sinners. The very ones that he threw out, I guarantee you, based off of the rest of Jesus' ministry, if they would have came into the temple to receive teaching because their hearts were repentant and they realized the corruption that was in them and their need for Christ, he would not have cast them away. He would not have thrown them out again. He would have told them of his salvation if they were repentant. And that's our great hope. You know, John 6, 37, Jesus says, All who come to me that my Father gives me, I will never cast out. Right? He will never cast out those who come to him. Right? This is our great hope. That Jesus Christ will save the most corrupt, hypocritical, greedy, adulterous, lying, idolatrous, thieving, piece of garbage person. If they will just repent and believe the gospel and trust him. That's the grace of God given to us. This is our grace that we have. And it's this, that God will not accept false religion or hypocrisy from people, but he will forgive those who turn to him and seek his mercy. That's the grace of God given to us in Christ. Jesus always does this to us. He shows us our sin, and he shows us our corruption, and hopefully it beats us down if the Holy Spirit is working in us at all. And then he beckons us to come to him and escape the judgment that we deserve, and he promises us he will never cast us out if we come to him. That's grace. That is the grace of the gospel. Now, everyone in this room, everyone's failed. Everybody in this past week, month, day, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, everyone in here has sinned in some way. If you hadn't, think harder. Everyone in here has sinned in some way this week and every other week. We've not cared for the outsider the way we should have. We've not cared for the poor. We didn't help someone in need. We've lusted. We've lied. We've hated. We've done something. Actually, you can just boil it down to this. Did you love God with every single fiber of your being? Or did you watch TV for five minutes? Because that's not loving God with every fiber of your being. Everyone's failed. Did you love your neighbor exactly as you love yourself? Or did you get short or snappy with someone or not have patience with someone? Everyone has sinned is the point that I'm trying to make here. Right? Everyone, believer or not, in here, whether you're a Christian or not, has done something corrupt that makes us deserve to be cast away from the presence of Christ for all of eternity. And yet, here Jesus stands, as he did in the temple, ready to forgive us and love us and teach us a better way to live if we will just come to him. That's the grace of God shown through Christ. So in whatever way that you've been failing... Maybe you've been despairing because of your sin. I don't know. I know I get that way. Whenever I feel like I'm in some spiritual rut, I begin to despair. When I'm not loving Christ the way that I ought to, whenever I I find myself fighting with old sins, when I find myself not loving my wife the way that I should, when I find myself not loving God the way that I should, um, I begin to despair. But Christ has a grace for us, and he promises, if you come to me, I'll never cast you away. If you come to me repentant, I love you. Right? So I would encourage you, no matter where you're at, go to Christ and seek His forgiveness. Seek His mercy. The Bible tells us that God has mercies for us every single day. And maybe you're in here and you're not a Christian, and and maybe I'm calling you for the first time to seek forgiveness and mercy from Jesus Christ and believing that He's taken your punishment in your place that you deserve. Or if you're a Christian, I'm telling you to do this for the 10,000th time. (laughs) Because we know how much we fail and we know how much we have to go to Christ daily. But go to Him. And then be pushed by His unyielding grace given to us to love Him 
and to give him the pure worship from changed hearts that he would love us in spite of our own corruptions and worship him purely the way that he deserves to be worshiped. Go be changed by the good news and be made clean by Christ. And I'll leave you guys with this. This is the grace of the gospel in spite of our corruptions, in spite of our sin. Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. We're dirty and should be cast out of Christ's presence for eternity. But by faith in Him, He has made us completely spotless in His sight. Go to Him and seek mercy. Let's pray. Father, You're good to us in spite of our corruption. You give us grace even though You tell us that you demand perfection, that you won't tolerate corruption in your church. And you still give us grace. Father, help us not to take that grace for granted, but to take that grace and be changed by it. That we would strive to worship you truly. That we would have true faith that leads to repentance. That our, our cold hard hearts towards whatever sin we have in our life would be broken by the fact that you've loved us enough to suffer our penalty. Father, thank you for the grace of the gospel and that Jesus doesn't just cast us away from your presence, but Jesus stands there teaching, saying, I love you. Here is the good news for sinners. God, I pray that you would bring someone to faith this evening, maybe for the first time, or you would bring someone back into the fold, or that you would just grant repentance to your people who have allowed corruptions to come into their lives that they've not been repentant of. Father, make us a holy people. Father, help us to worship you truly. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.